Well, you might not be able to um, share my sentiments, but I'm glad to be back. I'm glad to see you, whether you are glad to see me. Is the this, this week, every year, uh, because for us at Gracie Van, September is a month where we nominate uh, men for the office of elder. So normally, I take this Wednesday night to, to take you back to two passages, uh, one found in 1 Timothy 3, the other in Titus chapter 1, and we go over again the qualifications, the biblical qualifications for the office of elder. Because as you prepare to nominate, uh, we want to remind you what the Scriptures have to say about those men and uh, the, quality, the, the characteristics that you should be looking for in those men. So normally we take this Wednesday night to do this anyway. So, but we're going we're gonna to take a little bit longer to uh, kind of slow down and and go over some things concerning the the bigger picture or the bigger topic of church government. Now, what in what could possibly be more unspiritual than than government of all things? Um, if you mean to tell me that there's politics in the church? <laughs> well, uh, that depends. That depends on what you mean by the word politics. I mean, if you mean uh, by politics that there's those uh, those backroom deals and uh, you know arm twisting and and position shifting and and money bribing stuff that you see that goes that goes on in national and state politics. Certainly not. But, uh, gang, the word politics comes from a Greek word, polis, which simply means city. And um, every organization, every organization has to have some kind of structure to it, some kind of administration, some kind of rules, including the church. The church is, it's needful for the church to have those kinds of things. And so, if you if you mean by that, is there a a political a a a a city a kind of structure? Yeah, there is that in the church, um, and and I'm I'm surprised that maybe you don't already know that. Maybe maybe you do, but I, I want to start. Um, I want to start by introducing you to something that I think the Bible has to say about the overall subject of just plain old church government. Um, guys, does the, does the word theocracy, does that ring a bell with you? Um, theocracy? Um, it didn't exist very long uh, in the Old Testament, but it did exist. Um, as you know, so much of the Old Testament it is designed to prefigure what will ultimately come to pass in the New. You know that, don't you? Well, when, when the New Testament talks about the kingdom of God, the thing in the Old Testament that prefigured the kingdom of God is this, the theocracy. You know what a democracy is? It's supposed to be a government by the people. Well, a theocracy is a government by or for or of God. And the theocracy did exist uh, for about a hundred years. Uh, maybe that's a little overstated, but under the kingships of David and Solomon, the theocracy existed. Uh, with the passing of the theocracy, a lot of things changed, but that's another that's for another night. But this is a term, theocracy, that you that I hope you're familiar with. 
It did exist. It does exist. It did exist in the Old Testament. And it prefigured the upcoming of the kingdom of God. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus Christ arrived on planet Earth to announce and proclaim a kingdom. A kingdom means that there's a king. And the king has rules. Well, that's the, the, the Old Testament prefigurement of that was this. The theocracy. Now, I want you to look at something with me concerning the theocracy. By the way, it only, as I said, it only really existed under two kings, David and Solomon. But I want you to see something with me. And we're not, we're not going to take long in this. But if you've got your Bibles, I certainly hope you brought them. Since that's what we do here on Wednesday nights is study it. Uh, go to First Chronicles chapter 22 with me. First Chronicles 22. I want to show you something, which uh, maybe you, you've seen before. But guys, uh, David is coming to the end of his life. You know David, you know the shepherd boy, the guy that slew Goliath, that guy. He's coming to the end of his life, and he begins to, he begins to, you know how you do that? You know, you kind of prepare for, you, you kind of cram for finals, um, you know, as you're about to die. <laughs> and, um, um, well, David is doing that, and the, one of the big things on his mind is the building of the temple. Remember that? And he goes, he's, he's about to build a temple, and, and God sends the prophet uh, Nathan, I think, or over somebody, one of those prophets, and says, uh-uh, it's not for you, your son's going to do it. So just look at, well, look with me, chapter 22. Now, I don't know about your Bible, but my Bible has those, the, the big paragraphs, you know, the little black things uh, over the paragraphs, those black things in there, you know. Um, did I run you off already, Bill? Uh, I, gosh, I just started. Um, the, those black things in there. Well, my black things say this in chapter 22. Um, David prepares for temple building. Okay? So he um, gets all of the supplies together and readies them for the temple building. Now look at chapter 23. Look at verse 1. When David was old and full of days, he made Solomon his son king. So David is, knows he's dying. Look what he does in chapter 23. He organizes the Levites. You've heard of those. We don't need to discuss what they are just yet. But you notice, he's organizing them. That's the point. He's organizing the... Look at chapter 24. David organizes the priests. Oh, my goodness. The boys, he's, organi- he's organizing the building of the temple. Now he's organizing the Levites. Now he's organizing the priests. Look at chapter 25. David organizes the musicians. Oh, my goodness. You mean there's some kind of organization behind church music? Oh, the... the Forsooth and Anon. Um, and then you go to chapter 26. He, he organizes the gatekeepers. I mean, overseeing that building was important in the city. And so he organizes the gatekeepers. Now look, further on in chapter 26, if you've got some of those black words, mine says, he organizes the treasurers and other officials. <laughs> he puts in place some treasurers. Oh, I mean, somebody's got to manage the money. And some other officials. What, what might those guys be? If you read on them, you'll find out what those other guys are. Um, over in verse 29, we're not going to get into it, but um, verse 29 of the Israelites and the, um, whatever his name is, and his sons were appointed to external duties for Israel. External duties as officials and judges. External duties for Israel. Oh, my. Then look at uh, chapter 27. He's organizing military divisions. He's getting the army ready. What is David doing? He's about to die, and he's putting together um, a structure, an organization 
and administration. He's putting together and leaving behind instructions for the proper management and government of the theocracy. Now, guys, I'm saying all of this because I simply, I think, you know, we, um, we, we look at government or church government as an ugly thing. And, you know, uh, um, and it's become ugly to us. And, and I understand that. And, you know, when I think of government, I think of dirty hands and, and the Tennessee waltz. And not the song. <laughs> um, you know, it does, I understand why it's ugly. But, guys, all I'm saying is, in the Bible, when David gets ready to exit stage left, he puts in place, for the sake of the theocracy, an organizational scheme that will permit or allow a better, safer, more efficient functional unity. The theocracy needed a government. (laughs) And so does the church. You know, Chuck Swindoll, who's one of my heroes, Chuck Swindoll talks about church government as being uh, the necessary evil. And he's probably right. At least I understand what he means. Um, In light of the, the, the fallenness of man and and in, in our proclivities to sin, and um, every organization, including the church, must have some kind of structure, some kind of rules, some kind of administration, so that it can accomplish its task. And I want, we're going to point this out later, but the New Testament is not silent about this subject. Not the theocracy, but about church government. We're going to look at it, and, and with, Some detail, not much, but um, all all I'm simply saying is you cannot disparage church government per se. Now, I understand that a lot of you have been burned by church government. I understand that. And I want you to know that Gracie Vans ain't perfect. Um, But I want to explain it to you, at least a little bit how it, it operates, um, but I, I, you know, there, there are those who are saying, well, I don't want to talk about church government. I, I just, I don't want to dirty my hands with that stuff. I just want to do spiritual things. Well, ladies and gentlemen, church government is not non-spiritual. Uh, David saw it as an essential, and so does Paul, and we're going to look at that. Um, um, governments, I, I, I know, uh, can be disillusioning. Um, I hope you don't think that good old Republican Party or Democratic Party is the solution to our country's problems. They're not. But not only can federal and state governments be disillusioning, church governments can be disillusioning. But all I'm saying is that government, per se, is not unspiritual. It's not dirty work. Um, and I can tell you this, and I think all you people in this room know I speak of truth. Um, I don't know of anything that Satan uses more frequently to damage and mar and bruise the people, the, the body of Christ, than he does church government. 
And in light of the recent tragedy, in, in light of the recent ecclesiastical tragedy in our community, uh, it seemed to me fitting that we rehearse some of this, that we go over it just a bit. Gang, let me say, we, we make no claim here at Gracie Van that our church government is inspired. <laughs> but nor will we agree to call it unspiritual or unbiblical. I can tell you that what, most of what I'm going to try to defend or, or describe tonight has been thought through and is, I think, at least consistent with, um, with biblical uh, principles. Okay? So I, I, all I try to do with that first uh, uh, ten minutes is simply tell you, we're going to talk about church government, and you know, well, I'd rather talk about Romans 9. Well, I understand that I would too, but this is not, this is not unnecessary, nor is it dirty work. Uh, this is something that, that Satan can really um, take advantage of when, when it's done wrongly and done badly. So as best we know how, we try not to make those mistakes. But, you know. All right, now, so having said that, simple, all I'm trying to say is uh, don't feel like you're shortchanged if you're talking about church government. It's, it's just as much, it was on David's mind before he died, and David was a pretty good uh, barometer of spiritual things. And before David died, he thought, well, listen, we better put some church government in place. And the Apostle Paul, we're going to look at, we'll see, in all of his missionary journeys, one of the things that he does, that he's, that he's concerned about is leaving behind some orderly uh, processes by which the church of Jesus Christ can be run. And we'll take a look at some of those. First of all, let me do this, just real quickly. And I've done this before, I know. But um, um, in the history of the church, or when you, when you look across the church, and I'm, ta- I'm talking about all churches, all brands and stripes, there are only three approaches to church government. Only three approaches. Okay, the first approach is what's known as a hierarchical or bishopric um, form of church government. It is a uh, it is a, a basically summarized very simply. It is from the, it's a government from the top down. Uh, it is decisions made at the top, and they are pressed down until into the churches of uh, a part of this organization or part of this network, whatever. Um, there are some obvious examples of this type of church government. What are they? What did you say? The Roman Catholic Church is an example. What's another example? What? Episcopalians are as an example. What's another example? The Methodist Church is an example of a bishopric or hierarchical. Of course, in the Roman Catholic Church, you have a pope. Um, in the Methodist Church, you have a district superintendent. But, the, you know, if you were ever a part of the Methodist Church and your pastor got moved away from your church and sent over to another place, well, that was because the district superintendent got some pressure from somebody and he decided this guy's not going over there or whatever. And, but it was a, a decision made at the top and it was pressed down. Now, guys, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to denigrate this uh, approach to church government. Anybody who's committed to this would appeal uh, to Matthew 16. Where is it? Uh, Matthew 16, the 13 through 16, I think, something like that. But you know the you know the story. 
Jesus comes to the disciples and he says, uh, who do men say that I am? And, and uh, people say, well, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're the prophet, some of you. And he says, okay, that's great. But you fellas, who do you say that I am? And uh, Peter steps forward and says, thou art the Christ of God. And do you remember what, what Jesus said? He said, um, uh, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Uh, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, but my Father in heaven. Re- and uh, on this rock, on this rock, I'll build my church. Remember that passage? Well, that is the passage that is, um, that is uh, appealed to with passionately to defend this approach to church government. And it's a very... I mean, guys, I'm, I, I, I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying it's an approach. It's an approach that's adopted by a lot of people within the uh, Christian, even in the body of Christ. The other approach, or the, a second approach, is a congregational. Um, a congregational approach to church government. Give me an example of a congregational church. What did you say? Southern Baptist. Well, the Baptist. Uh, not just Southern Baptist. But we'll just put SBC up here. The Southern Baptist Convention is an example of um, those who are committed to this approach to church government would call this a pure democracy. It is a government by the people. Now, if you've ever been a part of a Southern Baptist church, you know that that's really not what it is. It's really um, more of a benevolent dictatorship, particularly if you've got a dictator who's benevolent. Uh, But um, (laughs) you hope you've got a benevolent one. But... um, I can say to you, ladies and gentlemen, this is just my opinion. You can take it or leave it. But in, uh, in terms of the three approaches to church government, this one has the least biblical warrant to it. There's never, never any uh, uh, appeal in the New Testament for a pure democracy. Never. But let me just say this. This doesn't function as a pure democracy, but it's billed as one. Theoretically, it's a pure democracy. But it doesn't functionally... It's not a pure democracy. Now, the third approach to, to um, church government is, a, is an, an approach called, and you know, guys, you've you got to get this term straight. Um, the approach to church government is called Presbyterian. It's called a Presbyterian form of church government. And it comes from a Greek word, presbyteros, which is translated in the New Testament as elder. Gang, you know, you know, they say, well, I know what you believe. You're a Presbyterian. Well, I am a Presbyterian, but that doesn't tell you what I believe. <laughs> I mean, in terms of what I believe, you're either an Arminian or you're, you're Reformed. And I'm Reformed in my, my, commit, my theological commitments. But calling me a Presbyterian doesn't say anything about my theological system. We've got to get that term down. This is a government term. It's not a theological term. It doesn't tell you what, you, what, you, what your theological commitments are. It just tells you your approach to government. Okay, you've got, got to get that one down. Um, but it's, it, is a, um, uh, it is a government, well, it is a government by elders. It is a government basically by either appointed or elected representatives. That's what this is, that kind of government is. Now, guys, um, this, this is something I always love to say uh, because everybody, I mean, most people have got, I've said it so much, people have gotten it now. But, you know, you, you talk to some audiences and they, 
you ask them, all right, the good old United States of America is a, and they yell, democracy. No, it's not. The United States of America was never intended to be a democracy. When you pledged allegiance to the flag, you didn't pledge allegiance to a democracy. You pledged allegiance to a republic. I pledge allegiance to the flag, United States of America, you know, and to the republic for which it stands. Ladies and gentlemen, the United States is a republic. A republic means that it is run by, in this country, elected representatives. This is not a democracy. The only way democracy is exercised is when you elect the, the officials that go represent you. But the government itself was pounded out by elected representatives. It's a republic. Well, I say all of that because that's the, that's the closest thing to help you understand this type of church government. It is a government that is performed by elders. Now, you got your Bible still open? You need to open, you need to turn to, um, Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. Um, now guys, stay with me, just, you know, don't go to sleep yet. Um, there are two passages in the New Testament that give you qualifications for elders. Two passages. Titus 1, 1 Timothy 3. Okay? You are looking at one of the larger descriptions of a biblical elder in Titus 1. But we're not going to look at that. We're going to look at that maybe next week. Or maybe the next. Who knows? Um, but here's what I want you to see. Verse 5. This is, now Paul is writing Titus and he says, Titus, this is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order. Ah, oh, here's that government stuff. And appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Now, gang, under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost of God, Paul says to Titus, in terms of running the churches in the villages and the towns around where you are, I want you to go appoint elders in every one of them. Now, guys, that word that is translated elders right there is this one, presbyteros. Now, but look, look also, look a little bit further into verse 7 with me, because there's another Greek word here that I want you to see. Um, for an overseer. That word is episkopoi. Uh, let's see. Episcopoi. Um, and it's the word that we get to episcopal from. But, but notice, guys. Hey, engage. Look, look what the, look what's happening here. Uh, look what Paul has done. Appoint elders. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant, quick-tempered, or drunken, but hospitable, lover of good stuff. Now, what are you getting down there? You're getting qualifications for an elder. Do you see that? Here's my point. Paul equates a presbyteros and an episkopos. Those are the same office. Same word. I mean, same office. Different words that he uses. Okay? That's all I'm saying. Um, there are... Paul is leaving instructions behind for elders to be appointed at the head of the church. Now, one other passage, passage I want you to see is in Acts 14. You can find that. 
Acts 14, 23. By the way, we, we fit, we, I mean, if you're nervous and you've not been here when I was teaching, we still finish at 745, so don't worry. I promise. I mean, whether we're finished or not, we finish. I mean, because we're really not here to be taught anything, are we? <laughs> we're just here to let our kids go to the, the, the youth program. <laughs> and Jimmy just takes up this 45 minutes for us while we wait for our kids to get finished. I understand. Um, but but uh, um, Acts 14, verse 23. Uh, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they believed. There it is again. Paul is on one of his missionary journeys, and I think this is the second one. I think he's on his second missionary journey. What is he doing? He's going from town to town and appointing elders. Now, guys, um, my point is, uh, in terms of church government, you can do it this way. I don't like that. You may like that, but, you know, I don't, I don't think a pope knows what's best for the local church. But you may like that. Nor do I want to yield to the district superintendent. Um, but that's your business. Uh, again, congregationally, I don't know where you got that one. Um, that's just, that's, that's, that's Americana. That's a piece of Americana. Uh, you know, you know, well, we're here in America. We're, 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 we're into government by democracy, you know, grassroots. Well, that's, that's for you, but unfortunately, whereas I can find something to which these folks appeal, I can't find a thing. For that thing to appeal to. But this thing, you see what Paul does, what he tells, what he tells Titus to do. In, in organizi- organizing those churches, I want you to appoint elders. And that's what this government is. It's a government by elders. Now, guys, stay with me, and this might be where we'd have to stop for the night. i got uh, one other major point to make about church government. Because there is a distinction made, I think, and I think I can defend it, in what is called um, a ruling elder versus a teaching elder. And I want to show you that. If you've got your Bibles, if you can find 1 Timothy chapter 5. Now guys, agree or not agree, let me just tell you this. This is very fundamental to the way that Grace Divine operates. Absolutely bedrock in how we operate as a church. All right? It's one text, one verse only, and let me try to explain it. Verse 17, uh, that's chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Now, do you see that? (laughs) On that statement, I and countless others have made a distinction in elders. This is a government by elders, but in that government, there are two kinds of elders. Now, now, look at the text, guys. I'm just telling you, grow this out of the text, because that's where we grew it. Um, there is a group of people called ruling elders. At Grace Evan, there are 13 of those. Now, let, let me say this. There are really only 12. But Bob Wood was such an integral 
unreplaceable piece of church government around here that when he became 75, we made him an elder emeritus. Now, we had not any of that for anybody else, but Bob's right back there, and uh, we couldn't do it without him. The, it, actually, the, um, uh, the rest of us are a bunch of mean old men, and Bob uh, makes us nice. <laughs> so, it, it's, a, it's a, rotating, a rotation of 12 people, but we got 13 elders. By the way, uh, there are two other ringers on that. Uh, are, there, are there three others? Jeff Sample is on this. By the way, this is called a session. Or you can call it a board of elders, whatever you like. But uh, in my world, we call it a session. This bunch right here is, it makes up the session. Uh, Jeff Sample is a part of this. Brent, Brent, are you in the 12? Or, you're not in the 12, are you? No. Brent Wilkins is a part of that, and then I am. So, on a monthly basis, and more often if need be, this bunch gets together. But here's the point. That's not the point, guys. These people are called ruling elders. And if you'll uh, look at the text, guys. It says, let the elders who rule. Well, you know, ladies and gentlemen, you don't like that. You say you like it, but you really don't like it. When you're as accomplished and successful and as wealthy as you folks are, which is one of the blights of Gracie Van, when you're accomplished and wealthy and in charge and the boss and own your own company and all that business and you're making all the shots and then somebody says, you got a, a bunch of rulers over you. Actually, um, somebody said in, in the staff meeting today, they said, no, uh, it's not ruling elders. It's not the, it's not the, the congregation obeying the rulers, it's the rulers obeying the congregation. That's unfortunate. But ladies and gentlemen, elders are charged with the responsibility of ruling. 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 Guys, do you see that? In fact, let me just give you another piece of bad news. Um, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. Take a look at it. It says, Obey your leaders in the Lord. That's you, ladies and gentlemen. You are being biblically mandated to obey your leaders in the Lord. Did you hear that? And when you don't, you understand what they call that. It starts with an S. These men are charged with the responsibility of ruling. Now watch, we're, tra- we're talking about this. We're talking about a distinction between ruling elders and teaching elders. But notice what the text says. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. Especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Now, guys, out of this group of, of, of this combined group of ruling elders given the responsibility to rule, by that text and other places as well. Out of this group of 13 or 16, a couple of those men have been asked to, in essence, leave this friendly confines and go teach and preach. Leaving the ruling... This bunch over here. Oh, yeah. Oh, they're ruling elders. Oh, they're part of this bunch. 
But they've been assigned a unique, special task. It is the task of preaching and teaching. So those guys who are ruling elders, but they, that's where the distinction we call a teaching elder. They have come out of here with a unique task to handle the Scriptures with accuracy and faithfulness. Now, they're a part of this, yeah. But the responsibility for ruling is really not in their hands. It's in these fellows' hands. They're the ruling elders. These guys are teaching elders. You know, guys, um, I said this to my wife just recently. Um, I heard on Saturday, excuse me, not Saturday, Sunday, I have a good friend. Actually, that's an overstatement. He's not a good friend. He's a friend. And um, when we, we both left seminary about the same time, I think he's a year ahead of me. He went to Westminster. I went to Reform Seminary in Jackson. But um, he left Westminster, and uh, he's a UVA graduate. Uh, University of Virginia graduate, bright boy, bright boy. I mean, I, I didn't want to be in a conversation with him because uh, it just exposed all my weaknesses. But this is a bright boy, um, good guy, real trim. I didn't like standing next to him in the family photo either because um, he was so trim. And um, but anyway, he, he was just a good guy, and we met on a couple of occasions. There were there were four of us. There was a guy in Orlando. There was a guy in Atlanta. And me and him, um, we would meet in a, in a hotel on I-95, I think it was, or I-85 or something. We'd meet in a hotel and spend the weekend together talking about church planning. And this guy was one of those four guys. Randy uh, um, Pope was another one of them. Randy Pope, uh, Chuck Green, me, and uh, this guy's name was Skip Ryan. Skip is brilliant. Good guy. He pastored in Charlottesville for a long time. But then about, oh gosh, I would say it's 15 years ago now. A huge Presbyterian church. Oh, it's been 15 years. It has been 15 years, yes. Um, a huge Presbyterian church in Dallas. Highland Park Press. Anybody ever heard of Highland Park Press? It's a biggie. It's where the Hunts went, Lamar Hunt and all that crowd. It's oil money. I mean, it's a, it's a, anyway, that church split over the same issues that you guys um, are, were talking about. Uh, this church split, and uh, 1,100 people left that church and went and started another church. Can you imagine on your first Sunday having 1,100 people? Whoa. Um, and it's called Park City, Park, Park Cities, Park Cities Prez in, in, in the SMU area right now. Well, my point is, of all that is this. Um, we heard on Sunday morning that Skip has resigned. And um, it, it was appeared in the, the Dallas paper, and, and he resigned, and he said, after 15 years of... Uh, running or leading or pastoring a large church, basically, I'm out of gas. Here's my point. That should never happen. That should have never happened. Not if these men were ruling. <laughs> you know what's privileged about my position, ladies and gentlemen? I get to do that, and I get paid to do it, rather handsomely. <laughs> but guys, running this thing, and, and you know, Susie's heard me say this. I, when we started this church almost 16 years ago now, I said, I don't want to run a church. 
I don't want to run a church. I don't want to run a church. Very frankly, if I'd been running this church, this church wouldn't be where this church is because I don't know how to run a church. I'm not good at running a church. I hate running a church. I don't want to go to meetings. I hate meetings. I hate details. I hate all that. I hate that stuff. But by God's precious kindness to me and my wife, I get to do that. And there's another group of men that you elect. We'll talk about this next week. That you elect and put in a position who are <laughs> somewhat described by 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. Not, act, not perfectly. None of them. None of them qualify. None of us do. But you put those men in a position where they are ruling at Grace Evangelical Church. And I get to be a part of them. I get to influence them as best I can. Sometimes I win, sometimes I lose. But I get to influence them. But primarily, what I'm paid to do is go preach and teach. That's, that's the heartbeat of our government, ladies and gentlemen. Elders will tell you how they're elected next week. Uh, most of you already know this. By the way, I think... Uh, so many of you have heard this before, but in some of this you hear the new members class, but I bet you forgot it. <laughs> you're not listening to the new members class. Um, you never were listening to me. Maybe you're listening to Jeff, but you never were listening to me. You were too tired. But, but anyway, this is, this is it. This is how we run. This is it, folks. These men put in a position, 12 of them, elected by you uh, on an annual basis. Four new guys come on every year. Got a rotating session. You put four new ones on here that are, that are described by 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, and they come and they rule. And then your job, biblically mandated, is to obey them. I do. I work for them. This is not my church. It ain't theirs either. But it ain't mine. I don't want it. I don't want to run a church, ladies and gentlemen. I'm not a dictator, neither benevolent nor otherwise. I get paid to be a teaching elder. That's a little bit. Next week we'll come back and talk some more about some of the unique features of Gracie Van. That is, how Gracie Van has... We've had this long discussion over years. What does it mean to rule? What does it mean to rule? And so we'll show you a little bit next week about how we pounded that all out, some of the unique features of this place. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for the great um, privilege of ministry together uh, in the midst of a group of people who really love your word and really want to know it and really want to go obey it. And we pray, O oh God, that you would raise up uh, men of unequaled character, men of, um, of unrivaled commitment to lead this congregation. Because, Lord, um, apart from your spirits moving in this congregation, we'll put the wrong men in place, and then we'll all suffer. So grant, O oh God, have mercy on this humble place and put in position those men of of sterling character um, who can lead this congregation. We commit ourselves to that and do so in the name of Jesus. Amen.
and put in position those men of, of sterling character um, who can lead this congregation. We commit ourselves to that and do so in the name of Jesus. Amen.